Hey friends, it's Eric here. Thanks for listening to the Building Us podcast. Hey, I want to invite you to follow me on my new show, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School, where I take a deeper dive into money and financial topics. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I hope to see you there. like to get into talking about some of the background reasons or some of the root causes that might be different because not everybody has the same type of ADHD or ADD but just like and that, therefore they have different root causes just like not everyone has the same type of depression or anxiety and so they have different different root causes even different parts of the brain are affected and therefore different medicine and different lifestyle and different therapy will work. Welcome back to the Building Us podcast, a show all about relationships, love, and money. This is Dr. Matt Morris, couples counselor, family therapist, uh, joined today, as always, by my amazing co-host, certified financial planner extraordinaire, Eric Garcia. Good afternoon, Eric. Amazing. Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Matt. And today we really have, I think, an interesting um, topic. Today we're talking about adult ADHD. And we have uh, an, a phenomenal guest, um, Dr. Arwen Podesta, psychiatrist in New Orleans. Um, thank you for being with us. Thanks for uh, spending your some some time of, of your afternoon with us. Arwen, please uh, tell us about yourself. Introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi. Thanks, everybody. Um, I appreciate being here. I love this podcast. My Background, uh, I'm a psychiatrist. I specialize in uh, holistic and integrative medicine. I'm board certified in that, also in addiction medicine, also in forensic psychiatry. So um, I, my practice over in Mid-City, um, Matt knows exactly where that is. Um, we share some clients and um, sometimes he parks in the driveway for Endemian parades. Okay. Um, anyway, so my practice over in Mid-City, New Orleans, um, I have had for about nine years and I've been seeing patients that have addiction, have interest in cognitive enhancement and wellness, have all different spans of psychiatric diagnoses and symptoms. And also uh, who I also work out of there and do my forensic cases, which is where law crosses with mental health or mental illness. So that's a little bit about me. Um, my background is I did my fellowship in forensic psychiatry at Tulane. So I've got that green there. And then I did my uh, medical, uh, sorry, my psychiatry residency at LSU. So don't worry, I've got LSU in my heart as well. But my medical school alma mater is University of Southern California. So please don't hate me. Um, but I'm from California, not originally, but I moved here from California. And then uh, came here right before Katrina and bam, got really deeply entrenched into the uh, most difficult time until now of New Orleans history. It's in our lifetimes. So I got to see as Matt and I worked together at Odyssey House, we got to see a lot of some really needy, um, needing patients with some really deep pathologies because of so much stress and trauma and also because of their um, struggles with addiction. And so here we are today. Well, you said a lot there. And I said a lot. 
You said a lot. A lot. The, two thi- the two things that caught my ear, number one was parking spot for Endymion. So for, that, that's secret. That's secret. So totally for those great. of you listening outside of New Orleans, <laughs> that's like like you could probably put that on on eBay for a right. few thousand dollars, easy, right? Well, there's altruism over here, you know. Uh, and yeah. it's not at it's at, like we don't get our windows broken. It's a block away, two blocks away, right, Matt? Where does it turn? Perfect, a perfect distance away. It is. Does he have a place? Does he have a place to pee as well? Um, there could, that could be arranged. I mean, that's a few thousand right there. A and then doors also, to the left. Yes. Yeah. And then, that's and right. then also, uh, Tulane, that's my alma mater. So, there you go. um, yeah, you, you could have stopped at Tulane. You didn't have to go to, I had to go all the way. Well, I'm also, I'm clinical faculty at both Tulane and LSU. So I oversee some of their, um, sometimes some of their addiction medicine fellows or some of their, uh, some of their psychiatry residents. Um, and they rotate with me at different locations. So I'm still involved with both LSU and Tulane in clinical capacities. I think that why can't we just get along, right? Why do we have to be a house divided? That's right. Why? Thank so my, my wife is LSU and I'm Tulane. Oh, there's the house divided. Hopefully, hopefully you guys get along. And if we you do. don't, you've got Matt right here. That's the why they have me. We do. That's right. why Matt and I became friends, right? <laughs> I, I remember going to when when Tulane and LSU played um, the first football game after so many years back in like 2001 or 2002 going to that game and I was it was at Tiger Stadium and I was all decked out in Tulane I think I was like one of three people there yeah. for Tulane you've made it out alive I yeah it was I had to I had to charm my way out of some of those conversations but we're good anyway you use a lot of big words and I'm gonna let Matt lead off. Because, like, I don't know, other than Mardi Gras and Tulane, I, I didn't understand half of what you said. You you are very charming, Eric. I'm, I'm sure that you made it out just fine. Hey, Arwen, <laughs> I do know where your office is at. Uh, do you know much about the building next door to you, to to your, I guess what would be to your right, if you were yeah. looking at the front door? Yeah. The, that so- was a famous building in New Orleans. I know a little bit about it, but tell me, tell me the de- depth of the fame or infamy fame, probably. In, infamy, right? Right. It was it was the New Orleans brothel. What? I did not know that. It was busted about ten years ago, maybe a little bit more now. Uh, lots of high profile people throughout the throughout the state uh, visited there. Were customers? Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, it not was the fascinating. church. The other side, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's okay. all in the same block. I mean, you can, oh, okay. you okay. can get all kinds of needs met in one block, one city yeah. block of New Orleans. Not yeah. unusual. Church, mental health. I know. Church, yeah. mental health, center, mental health, work. Defense, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Do it all. And, and you're in the middle, so you probably help all of them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Crossroads. That's great. Well, you mentioned that you and I met at Odyssey House, which is a uh, residential substance abuse treatment center here in New Orleans. And and um, that was more than a decade ago that you and I met there. Mm-hmm. And I had moved to New Orleans after Katrina, or moved back to New Orleans after Katrina. I lived here before then. Uh, but I moved from Virginia, and I worked with a lot of people that lived in Appalachia. And in some ways, the two communities, Odyssey House community and the Appalachian community, had similar issues, similar things that they dealt with. Um, su- substance abuse, obviously one of them, although typically different substances, but 
both of these communities were coming from really, really hard backgrounds. And I noticed that uh, moving into New Orleans, it felt like I was, I was, um, I was removing some of my mental health tools in moving back here. It seemed like there were more resources to deal with some of these issues in Virginia, where I lived, than when I moved to New Orleans. And I, it, it really felt like uh, at that, that time, I mean, we're talking 2007, 2008, it really felt like New Orleans was still in many ways recovering as a mental health community. What, just your thoughts on that time period and how, how far we've come as a community. It was, I mean, it was sick before Katrina. I moved here in 2004, so I didn't have the the deep understanding of how it was, but I heard from my colleagues that have been here for, you know, their entire lives and for many decades longer than me in the field of, of mental health. Um, it was sick before Katrina, I had some solutions starting around that time. Um, and then Katrina really was, it, it wasn't just one traumatic day, as you all know, it was a traumatic couple of weeks on the ground here in New Orleans from the actual storm, disaster, levee breaking, flooding. And then it was an ongoing problematic compounded post-traumatic stress for those that left the state or city and then were trying to figure out how to come back for those that were still here and they didn't have power or if they did, they had other struggles um, and you know a lot of municipal problems going on um that we still have residuals of right so it was it's like it was kind of a new you know the there's a new diagnosis called um chronic complex post-traumatic stress disorder Mm. um and because post-traumatic stress disorder is supposed to just be like one trauma like one thing that happened that made you fear for your life or feel like you were going to die or someone around you was going to die and that wasn't happening with us here. It kept being like helplessness and imposed helplessness and pile after pile after pile of, of awful things that happened. You know, people getting SBA loans and then one year later getting asked to refund them and when they still didn't have their house repaired or, you know, things that were just so confounding and confusing and made people feel so helpless on top of this ongoing trauma. and. Um, one of my mentors and uh, colleagues at Tulane, Denise Shervington, she's a psychiatrist and has won some great awards. She talks about the children of that time, really the children of New Orleans, but the children during the Katrina time. They're, they, yeah, they have grown up and have some bad behavior, but they're, they're not bad. They're sad. They just have this they, you know, like what you're talking about from Appalachia, this ongoing um, stress and trauma from a variety of psychosocial reasons. And then you compound that with here and Katrina, it's, it's very troubling. So I felt like when you moved here, it was right about the time that I started seeing some services increase, thanks mm-hmm. to you and people like yourself. You know, and you start, you were, you were doing free trauma and trauma were you doing trauma therapy or general general therapy at odyssey house but you were doing like like you got a you were doing it for a free program for patients right i mean uh i was getting paid but we uh it was a grant but the patients got to see too but the program was free for the patients and we were treating people who were coming back to new orleans who were um 
trying to rebuild their lives, who were struggling with substances. All of it included trauma during that That time. I mean, you couldn't talk to anybody that hadn't experienced some kind of trauma. I I remember a specific uh, uh, person, people talking about being in jail during that time and the the traumatic experience of that. You know, I'm a professor at Holy Cross. Just some of the professors that were uh, stuck in the building, for instance, or uh, our president of the of the university at that time eventually found his way down to the Superdome and got stuck in the Superdome. And he he experienced a lot of trauma during that time. So the the trauma was everywhere that you could you could look. And um, you you talk about me moving back to the city. There were a lot of mental health professionals moving out of the city at that time also, or a lot had been washed out by Katrina, if you will. Yeah. We had a brain drain. We got furloughed from Tulane and LSU. I was stuck in the piney woods of um, Pineville, Louisiana for 18 months, uh, 16 months, um, because part of my, our charity patients at LSU charity, um, they, um, they were at the hospital and that's another trauma. Imagine being at charity hospital as a psychiatric patient. Yeah. Um, about 97 of them were eventually after, I want to say seven or eight days of, of, um, no power, no water, awful torture times in the hospital. Um, many of, you know, folks that were in the hospital as, as treaters, as providers, nurses, doctors, they were, everyone was struggling and suffering. Um, the patients got bussed up after the flood subsided a bit. They got bussed up to central Louisiana where we hosted them at a old state hospital that reopened a wing for us. And so we were up there with them until they got, until we were able to place them all throughout the country in different places. Then I came back. I didn't have a house. My, I owned a house and it got flooded. And yeah. I didn't have a, I didn't have my I didn't get my insurance for over a year. I didn't get um, a contractor that I could trust for quite some time. Luckily, I had a friend that was is a contractor, but he was working on other stuff. So it took a, you know, so I came back to work and I was homeless. So, you know, yeah. and, and it wasn't just me. And it, anyway, so quite a time. But, yeah, we were all we were all clients of somebody right? at that time. Yeah. yeah, but then but then we started building and rebuilding, and you know, and I think that what we're seeing today, um, thirteen years after you moved here, and um, fifteen years after Katrina, we have some really robust healthcare systems. We could have more, but mm-hmm. we have really advanced our um, our ability to treat folks with mental health needs of all different types. Therapy psychology, trauma treatment, um, medical treatment, um, psychiatry, and primary care. I think those are the angles, both an inpatient and outpatient. And we have some some semi-quality, some low quality, and some really good quality, like every other demographic does. So yeah. but we, have, we have treatment, we have beds, we have um, availability. It's hard to get in, it's hard to call people, it's hard to get someone on the phone, but at least we have it. We have substance treatment, um, including Odyssey House, which is rebuilt, you know, they're a bigger facility now. Um, And they opened up and they extended their care. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, But A lot's happened. A lot has happened in a decade, yeah. Mm -hmm. But here we are, we still have trauma. So a quick question, you you mentioned, I think it was chronic post-traumatic syndrome. Is that what it was? Yeah. You just, you just added the chronic. And I know a lot of your work was at Odyssey house, which, which served, uh, which serves a lower, uh, socioeconomic demographic. I'm just curious, do you, did you see that same 
chronic post-traumatic stress across all demographics? Yeah, um, I do. And it's, um, and, you know, some people that didn't necessarily weren't hit as hard, they may be just like with COVID, some folks that, you know, live in a part of town that doesn't have any issue, they don't have any break in their, um, in their income stream. Um, You know, some people really aren't experiencing what some others are. But I think, you know, the, the, the place you start off, if the place you start off is, um, is lower because of socioeconomic background and even trauma in your childhood, then you're already behind when the, when the general trauma occurs. So yeah, um, that's my, that's my, um, my concern. And it was, I, what I said initially was chronic complex PTSD and the diagnosis is complex PTSD, but I like to add gotcha. the chronic in there because it really mm. does have this chronicity. And the more dings you have against you, the more it sticks and the longer it lasts, as we've yeah. seen. I mean, that was that was a tough that was a tough time. Like yeah. even talking like I gotta be honest, even talking about it, even watching news clips of floods, doesn't matter where, like I turn it off. Like it doesn't do anything big to me. I was like, I, I just can't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to go back there. Can you watch, did you watch Treme? I couldn't watch Treme. I never watched I d- it. I did. I did watch Treme. Yeah. Um, just, it was, I thought it was maybe one of the best representations of New Orleans of any show I've ever seen. So it was, totally. it was fascinating to me, but still, yeah, still watching some of that stuff. It's like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I can't, I still can't believe that that was, that was life. However long ago. Yeah. Yeah. 15 years later, and we still talk about it is, I mean, that's what these landmarks are, right? And we're going to have this with COVID. We're going to be like mm-hmm. COVID-19 equals March 15th, 2020. We'll never forget that, right? Yeah. So- and, what Here's what I found too. And this, this is kind of like my personal, like we didn't, we're in a part of the city that wasn't impacted like um, other parts. We didn't flood, but obviously everything was, was just disrupted in New Orleans. Uh, but I remember having um, business meetings with my business partners and they were not from new Orleans and we were doing long-term planning and they're like, okay, where do you want to be in five to 10 years? I'm like five to 10 years. Do we have three more months of hurricane season? And this right. was like in 2007 and 2008. I said, ask me that question. Ask me that question in November. Uh, it was, it was very difficult from a planning standpoint to, sure. to, to take a long-term perspective. Yeah. Cause you're just in, you're in recovery mode. And then you, you know, then the part about the traumatic, disorder is that then you have fear of it happening again and you have fear of re-experiencing and then it it disrupts your life and your ability to plan like you said this this is all um fascinating for sure and and um challenging to also remember and think through all of these details uh maybe we should do just a show on on complex chronic complex ptsd sometime in the future I know today, though, we wanted to really turn our our focus, turn our attention to um, this other topic that I'm seeing more commonly, more frequently in my own practice, and that's the the the, the diagnosis of a to, uh, of adult ADHD or attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Um, I know a lot of people out there are, have probably heard about this. You've probably diagnosed your spouse with it or your adult child with it. Um, this, it's, a, it's a very, uh, in some ways, popular diagnosis right now in that we're seeing a lot of, we're seeing it in the news a lot. We're seeing um, 
a lot of people diagnosed with it, self-diagnosed, diagnosed by family members with it. Uh, so I really do want to spend some time, um, Arwen, picking your brain about adult ADHD and just trying to understand it together uh, for our listeners. And yeah. so um, as as we jump into that, um, it does seem to be a more prevalent diagnosis. At least that's what I'm seeing in my own, my own work and my own practice. Um, I hear a lot of clients even just kind of muse or wonder if they have it. Um, some proclaim that they have it, you know, I've had it for years or I finally figured out that I have what I have, what's wrong with me. Um, so for you, why do you think it's more prevalent right now? What do you think the trend is there? Well, I think there's a tension to it right now. Um, pay attention, you know, there's a tension to it because, um, there's new medicine. I mean, this is interesting. There's a bunch of new medicines that came out for it. And I don't, um, I, I don't, I don't want to undervalue the amount of attention that pharmaceutical industries will call to a disease that they're treating. So there's more stuff on the media, there's more commercials, there's more, um, there's more talk about town. And then with that, there's also um, a lot of the generic medicines are now um a lot of the older medicines are now generic and so they're available and there's loads of i mean there's loads of adderall and um vivance and other stimulant medicines that are for the treatment of attentional disorder of attention deficit disorder there's loads of that on the street too and now we have a whole class of people not a whole class but a whole um uh, generation of people that that took their friends adderall during undergraduate or high school. And so they know they have ADHD because they took it and it worked and they got better grades, right? Yeah. Um, and so then now they're adults. And so they're seeing you. And so they may be self-diagnosing. Um, you know, I, I, I am seeing, I'm not seeing that much more because I'm coming from, I'm, the, I'm a psychiatrist that does some of the diagnosis and treating. I'm not seeing much of a change in the mm-hmm. numbers um, so not I, an increase in prevalence not from your increase. perspective. Yeah. No, I, I'm not seeing an increase in prevalence. But um, but what we know, and this is, I, I have the stats um, on various studies between 1999 and now, various studies show the prevalence of something like 4 to 11%, depending on the study, um, within the United States of people that have diagnostic, meet diagnostic criteria through not just a quick checklist, but um, for ADHD or ADD. However, outside the United States, 1% mm. to 3% yeah. in those studies. So is it what's in our water? Whoa. Is yeah. it how we think about diagnosis and, and treatment? I don't know. I mean, I do know. Now, wait, I, it says outside of, the, outside of the U.S. I'm curious. Is that like in other developed countries? Other or developed this? countries, yeah. Okay. yeah. And I, that, that was from, there was an article in 2010 that looked at that from the, um, and these are for child and adolescents. So it's not adults necessarily in this particular article, but nevertheless, yeah, it's kind of wild, right. To think about that, that difference in, um, in, in the numbers and I don't know. One one quick story about that, just to reiterate that I attend a international family therapy. It's a multidisciplinary uh, conference, but I, I attend it most years and several years ago, it was in the country of Slovenia, and they had a, uh, a, a national health minister from a Baltic country there to speak about 
uh, epidemiological studies in her country. And she reported that they had done a, a nationwide survey and discovered that they had almost 0.0% ADHD diagnosed in their country. And the whole congregation at the symposium gasped, <gasps> like, what? And, and it, it was fascinating that their findings were, were just that it was not being diagnosed in that country. In comparison to the U.S. at that same period of time, it was definitely around 10% yeah. for, U, for U.S. children. And so people were trying to figure out, um, you know, are, are, are they just not looking at the right things? Are they not talking to the right kids? Or are it's underreported in their country? You know, a few people were also saying maybe it's overreported in the U.S., I am of the opinion it's overreported for many reasons. I mean, we can do a quick, the pharmaceutical industry has a nice quick checklist for um, someone to take in, in a waiting room and they can be, I, all three of us, if we did it at the right time, perhaps for me, it would be if I didn't sleep well the night before and I had two cups of coffee and I took that, I would be diagnosed as ADHD. Yeah. So, and, you know, at different points in time. And that's what I don't like about psychiatric diagnosis. Going to get on my high horse for a second. Go ahead. Um, uh, is that so much of it, it's a point in time. It's not like ADHD, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's supposed to be diagnosed um, before the age of 12. Um, must be present before the age of 12, must be present in two or more settings, meaning school and home or play and school or whatever. Um, and it has to have a couple of other um, pieces that are necessary for the diagnosis. But, um, but so much of this is sometimes a point in time, trauma, stress, stress mm. right now, too much coffee, too little sleep, the, you know, development, development. development. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and supports and so many things. And so uh, this is, I, I kind of, I have to abide by diagnostic and statistics manual diagnoses. So do you, it's right. sometimes I think that it is mostly just a billing device and not necessarily something because if I, if I'm seeing a patient of yours and I'm saying, Oh, well, this patient has ADHD and you see them, what value is that for you? Because it could be it probably 50 different, um, different combinations of the criteria that they have to meet. And it could be 50 different people could present 50 different ways and still have the diagnosis of ADHD. So I like to think of, I want to tell you, if you and I are sharing a patient, I want to tell you, well, this patient is, um, has difficulty paying attention to um, difficulty organizing, difficulty with task switching, um, poor listening, maybe talk successively. Um, and so things like that, because those are pertinent for you to help them and for me to help them, right? The, the descriptors and the narrative are more are more helpful, more useful for yeah. me as a clinician than j just the label. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it is a label. And then the label sticks. And for someone who has some like psychosis or schizophrenia, so many people that have that we've seen at Odyssey House and other places with substance use disorders, they might look psychotic or they might look like they have attentional disorders, then they might get stigmatized with that label as well. And so they, you know, how many people did we see that had schizophrenia? And then lo and behold, when they stop using heroin and crack for 10 years, they stop using, they don't have schizophrenia, but they still have right. that on their label, right? Yeah. Very hard to diagnose someone accurately when they're, when they're using substances sure. daily. Right. Yeah. Can, and, can I ask a, a, a lay person question? Yeah. 
because uh, there, there's a lot there. Anytime, just, anytime. Oh, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to simplify it. You said psychiatric diagnosis. Kind of give me, give me like, what's the a psychiatric diagnosis versus some other type of mental health diagnosis? So, or? Yeah, they're, they're like, I'm a psychiatrist, so they're psychiatric diagnoses, right? So it's the okay. Diagnostic and Statistics Manual is the manual of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And those are, it's called the DSM. And it, they include um, subsets of the following major headings, which are anxiety, mood, um, psycho- psychosis, uh, tensional uh, eating, substance, and a couple others. But there's subsets of those. And those are all going to be behavioral, psychological, psychiatric diagnoses. Okay. Good question. It, and then, yeah, and then depending you, you, on what depending on which kind of mental health professional you talk to, they might use a little different verbiage, but we're all gotcha. generally okay. talking about the same stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, and then on ADHD, um, you, you talk about the fact that you have to have been diagnosed before age of 12. And I, I um, in fact, I was talking to a friend about the fact that we're going to be talking about this this afternoon. And, and that was a question that they posed to me, ask about this idea of you, like you need to be diagnosed as a child, but what if someone's not diagnosed as a child, but legitimately has it? What, the symptoms must be present before right, okay. the age of 12. And so that right. is that is part and parcel to the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual ADHD criteria. So the symptoms must be present. Plenty of people don't get into the testing system until you know someone recognizes it. It could be like a college professor, could be you know once they are done with law school and they're struggling to like do whatever for these long depositions and someone notices like, Hey, maybe you have, maybe you might need to be worked up for this. So yeah, so we can work up people who haven't been diagnosed before, but the symptoms are supposed, they don't develop. It's, it's the symptoms are really tried and true for real ADHD. Again, plenty of people have waves and kind of um, pieces and, and in fact, I'd like to get into talking about some of the background reasons or some of the some of the root causes that might be different because not everybody has the same type of ADHD or ADD. Just like, and that, therefore they have different root causes. Just like, not everyone has the same type of depression or anxiety, and so they have different different root causes. Even different parts of the brain are affected, mm. and therefore different medicine and different lifestyle and different therapy will will work. So you're talking about people who legitimately have the diagnosis, who who yes, maybe present differently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, r- rarely do I hear people talk about the root cause of ADHD. Sometimes you hear that often with other mental health diagnoses yeah. or psychiatric diagnoses, but uh, I don't always hear that conversation, particularly with kids, about the root cause of ADHD. Um, it's almost just described or yeah it's almost just described as they have adhd not here's what may have led to that although we are hearing all kinds of uh treatments uh that beyond medications that help so you can kind of reverse engineer that maybe it's a nutritional issue or maybe it's a sleep issue or something like that so it what are you thinking about what are some of the root causes that you're you're that are on your radar that you're aware of that you're interested in. Yeah. So, you know, and, and like this Slovenia group, why are they underdiagnosed? Are we overdiagnosed or is there a genetic, is there a genetic protection in someone from Slovenia? Perhaps it's a genetic, there's loads. I mean, so 
all diseases, right, are nature and nurture combination. It's not one or the other. Cancer is not only nature or nurture, right? It's like if there's a combination in some capacity, doesn't mean it's doesn't mean everything is protected by changing your diet, health, and lifestyle. You know, you still might be succumb to your genetics, but there's a genetic component and a and a biolog that's the biological component, and there's an environmental component in most or all diseases. Um, and so, I like to think of I like to to kind of compare mental health diagnoses or mental health sim symptoms as like a fever, or let's say let's say ADHD is a fever. We have tons of reasons that a fever will develop, but we still need to take the fever down first by giving a fever lowering agent such as cooling, um, cooling measures and perhaps you know aspirin or ibuprofen, right? So we still need to take the, the fever down, but then we need to work up, is it a, is it, a, is it um, COVID, right? Is it a, a, a virus? Is it a bacteria? Is it a fungus? Is it uh, inflammation from another agent? Is it an injury? So we need to work that up. And that's what I think of in my, what, that's what I try and teach my psychiatry residents and um, medical students that I do come across paths with, because I think what we miss in psychiatry, we have it, we have a treatment for it. We have the aspirin and the, and the fever um, mitigation uh, treatments for it. We have stimulants, which are our most common treatment for ADHD, but there's other lots of other treatments too. But let's figure out what the triggers are. Is there something related to pesticides, lead toxicity, nutritional deficiencies, iron deficiency, head injury, um, mm -hmm. fetal alcohol syndrome, post-traumatic stress disorder? Uh, all of those really do have a similar um, presentation in the checklist of symptoms that you can take. However, yeah. if we rid the if we find out there was a pesticide involvement and we rid the pesticides and undo that problem, then huge change. Then the symptoms go away. And so does that mean that they didn't have ADHD? No, they had symptoms of ADHD, but they but it was caused by a pesticide or like organophosphates. And there's some studies on that. Um, I love I absolutely love I love this approach. Um, yeah. because so so often so often we want a easy solution in our culture, right? An easy, give me just, just, yeah, just prescribe yeah. something to me, doctor, right? right? Let's just make it go away. Um, and it's almost, um, I, I tell you, I have learned as much about financial planning by hanging out with mental health professionals and just kind of hearing how y'all approach behavior change. And then what you just said about trying to understand like, okay, so you've got this fever, let's deal with it. And then figure out why, so we can prevent it from from happening again. It's like, yeah. okay, so you're in this financial situation. Why do you have so much debt? Why can't you save enough? Why are your investments down? Let's solve this immediate problem and then figure it out to solve the problem moving forward. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to recommend that not everybody go to a private medical school for uh, you know for because of the uh, debt ratio that I've experienced my entire life. So just saying. Um, anyway, yeah, no, that was your financial plug. That was we, my could, financial we, plug. Could, we could do a show on, we, yeah. we could do a show on student loan debt. There we go. There you go. Oh my God. We'll yeah. get you back on for that one. We'll get you as a, a, a witness. There you go. I know. I, I'm, we'll I'm we'll do some forensic, some forensic, uh, I don't know. It's, it's forensic like a, I needed to throw that word out. There you go. I, I, I want to look at, um, the criteria for ADHD yeah. for just a second. I'll, I'll read some of them off and then I want to come back to this underlying causes idea. 
Uh, so just for our listeners who may may not have the list of criteria right in front of you, let me read some of them. So um, the the person in this case, kid, often has trouble holding attention or tasks, um, doesn't seem to listen to when spoken to, may not follow through and follow through with instructions, has some trouble organizing themselves, tasks or activities, uh, may be reluctant to do tasks that require a lot of mental effort, um, often loses things, gets easily distracted, fidgets, moves, runs, climbs when inappropriate, um, often on the go or quote unquote driven by a motor, um, often or may blurt out answers, uh, has trouble waiting their turn. Can I, How can many? I be, oh, um... is it my turn? No, I'm taking my turn. I don't, I don't want to wait my no, turn. No, you, you, you go ahead. Go ahead. Go. <laughs> this is your so, show, Arwen. You're, you're the guest. Matt, so what's the, do you remember what the number, how many of those have to be met? Uh, for, so for, for kids, it's six have to be met. And out of if how you're many? Out of, there's about, there's getting close to 20, maybe 18, I think. So six out of 20. So do, what's that math, Eric? Come on, financial guy. Like your that six out of six out of twenty, we're somewhere on like 30 percent ish. No, but you could, but you could have like you could have like fifty iterations with fifty more than that, probably hundreds of iterations with hundreds of of. Oh, like how many combinations? How many how potential many combinations? It's yeah. a big number. It's, it's a big number. number. And so, so what does that mean? That and that's all psychiatric diagnoses. All of these diagnoses are like that. And so, and how can all of that come from the same place? It just can't. Um, if, yeah. you know, how can kid A that has those first six and then kid B that doesn't have any of the first six, but has the last six, how can they have the same diagnoses? But they mm-hmm. do. Forget kids A and kids B. If my wife was listening to that list, she'd probably say you have ADHD. Yeah, that's right. And that's where that checklist comes in. And that's maybe why I think we have so much. Um, there are solutions, but there, but I like to do a real thorough workup with a clinical questioning, um, on each of those details from like seeing how much people identify as inattentive, looking at them being inattentive or not seeing how distractible, hyperactive, disorganized. Some people are disorganized and not inattentive. Some people are impulsive and not disorganized. Task switching is one particular part of the brain that isn't related to, um, to focus, to, to staying on focus. Some people can't, some people stay on focus and they can't switch gears and that's ADHD related. Some people can't stay, um, can't switch gears. Some people can't, can't switch gears and can stay on task. Short attention span or long attention span, procrastination, daydreaming. These are all little subsets. Um, and there's, there's thoughts that some medicines and some neurotransmitters are responsible for certain things and some micronutrients are responsible for certain mm. certain symptoms um and so that's what i like to get into understanding how dopamine how serotonin how gaba which is a calming neurotransmitter how those things are related and i like to just try and I don't know. When I'm asking patients to tell me their stories, I'm like, I'm really not listening to your stories. I mean, I'm listening, but not like Matt's listening. I'm unpeeling and thinking of the of the midbrain and of the of the neurotransmitters, and I'm trying to see how these things um, are signaling. How these stories show me how your brain is signaling. Mm. 
kind of investigative in that way. You're really listening as like a puzzle. You're trying to, to yeah. figure this out. Yeah. The, um, in, in listening to that list I, and I didn't, I don't mean to read it in any sort of belittling way. I mean, I, I certainly have had many, many students over the years that, that, you know, graduate students, adults who, um, struggle with some of these things. One thing that I notice um, and and hear people report is that task switching, particularly for adults in our climate of trying to do a lot of stuff at the same time, task switching is often hard for adults. And we know neurologically that it takes some calories, some amount of calorie to switch gears. Um, and so there's an, there's an energy loss issue going on calorically there with, with switching tasks. And so uh, that can really tie into nutrition and what you're eating and what time of day it is and, and metabolically where you're kind of at in the process of, of, of nutrition in your body and, and what's happening in your body. And so that seems like that opens up a whole nother realm to investigate it around what people are eating, what kids are eating, what kids are being fed throughout the day what snacks kids have access to, um, all of that. So, so the, the nutritional aspect also seems really important. Absolutely. And I mean, I work with a nutritionist in my office. I have a fantastic nutritionist who's been doing functional medicine for a long time. And, and she really works closely with especially, well, kids and adults that have any sort of symptomology like this. Um, yeah. And one thing you said is, is um, about how much task switching um, and concentration takes, it takes a lot of concentration to, and, and that's yeah. glucose in your brain. And if you don't have glucose available, and I'm not talking about eating a candy bar, I'm talking about converting glucose healthily from the body, um, then, and making energy in your brain, um, having brain food, you know, fish and, um, peanuts, things like that. Those are brain foods, but things with lots of building blocks of dopamine, um, things with lots of building blocks of other, um, of, of other neurotransmitters like amino acids. Those are essential. And if we don't have some of those essential building blocks, we really don't have the ability to give our brain the food it needs. And that manifests in multiple things, depression, anxiety. I see, I think my conundrum right now in, in my practice is anxiety. Um, I think that's more, I'm seeing more of that than I have ever. And I'm seeing more of it that isn't responsive to, to regular treatment more than ever. But mm. back to, back to metabolism and back is, um, you know, it, it, classic ADD is characterized by that inattention and hyperactivity and disorganized. Um, but while the brain is at rest, when things are cool and you're not trying to do anything, you're normal. Like mm -hmm. you have no issue with decreased brain activity when, when you're just working on something normal. And that's the conundrum because where the criteria requires it has to be at two or more locations. If yeah. your home is like easy peasy and you're someone who is so uh, like overachiever, and we're going to talk about overachievers too, where if you're, if you're an overachiever and you get, but you still have attentional disorders, but you get all your work done at school and at school is where you look like you're inattentive and distractible, and then your home life and your sports, you're fine, then you won't be able to be diagnosed because your brain, when it's at rest and calm, it doesn't have the challenges. So, so you, 
you said classic ADD. Is ADD and ADHD the same thing today? Kind of yes. interchangeable. Okay. Yes, because because the H, the hyperactivity, it doesn't doesn't do that much. I mean, there's a, it's a nuance to treatment, but it's more of a nuance um, or a okay. nuisance, really. Um, but a nuance to um, to diagnosis, but it, it's real similar as far as treatment goes. So I know I know we're talking about adult ADHD kind yeah. of here, but I remember when when my son was young, there was a doctor that we followed, or um, my I would say my wife followed him more than me. I followed my wife; she followed this doctor, and he talked a lot about NDD as opposed to ADD, nutritional deficit disorder. Nice. Yeah. Um, cool. So mm-hmm. that was something that, that was really interesting. So I'm curious. So, so at a young age, we talk about nurture versus nature with, with, with ADHD. So if young kids are eating better and getting the nutrition that they need, there's a chance that they can stem off a potential diagnosis of ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's loads of studies on that and that's not true for everybody, right? Because for there's some, some nature, some biology that just your environment won't override, right? Um, so of course that's an important thing to think about, but you know, there's, I talk a lot about undermethylation. So, um, there's, you know, doctor, you have to explain that one. Yeah. So, um, methylation is, um, something that is, has been dismissed for quite a while, but it's a really important piece because Methylation is something that happens to the DNA. Methylation, methyl is CH3, a carbon and three hydrogens. It's a little, it's a little group and it sits on the end of, of another set of molecules or protein or an enzyme and it does something. It kind of turns it on or turns it off or makes something happen um, biochemically. So when you have, um, what if you have a genetic inability to methylate fully? That is important because methylation is part of the process where you get dopamine and serotonin developed, produced. And so if you have low dopamine and low serotonin, that just means you're at risk for a whole slew of things in the brain and body. But the brain in particular, ADHD, is thought to be a decrease in dopamine, a dopamine deficiency. Uh, some types of ADHD might be more dopamine and serotonin deficiency. So if you have this one particular set of um, enzymatic or inborn errors of metabolisms or genetic uh, uh, anomalies um, that are usually inherited, then you may have some manifestations of such. And it might manifest differently in different people because of other combinations of of nutritional stuff or other combinations of, um, of other genetic stuff. So anyway, so there's some studies that show that uh, B6, vitamin B6, which is something that works in the methylation pathway, that B6 was as, as effective in easing the symptoms of ADHD as Ritalin. So interesting, right? Wow. So yeah. B6, and what we know now is... B, um, the other vitamin Bs, folate in particular, some people have this one inborn error of metabolism related to the activate, to being able to activate folate. So when we eat folate, it's, you know, in leafy green vegetables, it's in, um, it's in our pregnancy, our, our pregnancy vitamins, right? They're um, folate rich. When we eat folate, some people that have this genetic 
mutation are not able to turn all of the folate into the activated form of folate because their enzyme has a, has a mutation or a variant in it. And so that can lead to low dopamine, low serotonin. That can also lead to low methylation and heart disease risk and other risks. So heart and brain and general wellness and health and aging are all related to some of these pathways. So we have to maximize these pathways. And the methylation pathway is one of them. Um, what we know now is that um, methylation and using something to override that folate deficiency, such as a medical food or a prescribed vitamin that would be the activated folate, um, it can be really effective. Um, it can give people more dopamine such that they, I take a lot of adults that have been on um, attention medicine stimulants that now it's causing them anxiety. I take them off of it by stimulating dopamine in a different way, by giving them uh, improved um, methylation more dopamine through activated folate and other micronutrients that help those pathways rev up, and then maybe some other medications that might target some other pieces of the puzzle. But diet, everything I'm hearing, like diet could have a huge impact on it. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. like, let, yeah. like Hippocrates, let thy food be thy medicine and That's medicine right. be thy food, right? Thank you. Yes. Excellent. I love it. Let me, so let me summarize uh, a little bit about what I just heard from you, Arwen, is that, um, uh, ADHD and all of the symptomology that goes with ADHD can be related to a very various chemicals within our body, including neurotransmitters, ser serotonin, dopamine, and others. And so, uh, traditionally, or or um, maybe industrially, we have often treated those with with these stimulants, and and they work in um, stimulating some of these neurotransmitter pathways. Am I with you? you so with me so far? I'm going to interject because. Yeah. I the way that I kind of break it down is that Adderall, Vyvanse, all of the stimulants are they are dopamine reuptake inhibitors. So they basically mm -hmm. are giving you just straight up you keep more dopamine in your system, and that's it. They're not. So you're just they're not stimulating more um, production. Uh, they're just more neurotransmitter production. They're just keeping more of the neurotransmitter in the spot. Yeah. That it that it needs to be. Right. Okay. But they also, these stimulants also have other problems. You mentioned, for instance, anxiety. I've heard of other issue, other metabolic conditions developing with uh, stimulants. Um, and so thinking about alternative treatments or other treatments, um, nut other nutrients, you mentioned micronutrients, you mentioned medical foods and those kinds of things. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I know we're kind of running low on time. So, um, Love to hear. I know our listeners would love to also hear just some of these other ways that they can probably be helping themselves attend more through what they eat. Um, yeah. So um, one of the biggest things is, well, really, there's so much. There's determining what what is the root cause, right? And so I have um, some colleagues that have broken down attentional disorders into about seven different subtypes. And those subtypes are like anxious ADD that might be something, uh, they might have physical stress and headaches. And so they might have attention problems when they are anxious, especially, and that's coming from mm. like um, a part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And so calming the basal ganglia down. Those are the patients that when they take stimulants, they get panic attacks. So they're like, oh, my doctor gave me Adderall and I hated it. I, I got a panic attack, but I kept taking it because it helped me 
to, you know, finish my, my bar exam or whatever. So, but then they kept taking it and they have panic attacks. So, um, so those promoting relaxation, you know, through lifestyle, through supplementation, um, I, every one of my patients is um, probably magnesium deficient. And I put everybody on a, a lot of magnesium, which is both calming, but also helps with heart health and focus and sleep. Sleep is another huge issue. A lot of people with attentional disorders, um, kids in particular, they're maybe not getting sound and restful sleep. And so we need to focus on sleep. And so some of the newer agents, um, there's a new medicine called Davigo, which is, um, if you think about that, it's day vigor, right? Make yourself vigorous hmm. during the day, helps people Clever. focus, but it's actually a sleep aid. It's not indicated for attentional disorder, it works on a pathway called orexin, but my patients that take it have this boost of focus and energy through the day, even though they take it at night for sleep. Um, some of these um, other medications, such as you know, if someone's having if someone's having night terrors throughout the night, they're not getting restful sleep. So uh, think about when you don't get restful sleep. Think about when your kids were little and they were you know up all night and you had ADHD during the day, right? You had ADD because you couldn't sleep. So you were trying to take extra coffee, caffeine or anything else. Um, anyway, so just breaking it down to different types and thinking of um, adding particularly the cofactors in the methylation pathway, which are the vitamin Bs and a little bit of zinc and some other, um, some other pieces. But uh, L-tryptophan and 5-HTP, those are precursors for some of the neurotransmitters. Fish oil is something that has been well studied in relationship to all brain health, um, including, um, including attentional disorders. Yeah. So that's a, just kind of a quick overview. I definitely think there's a role of iron. Um, iron plays a key role in dopamine metabolism and for those, there was a big study looking at um, how those with ADHD had lower ferritin, which when you do go to a regular doctor and you get your iron tested, most times they don't test ferritin. Ferritin is the, um, the sum of the iron stores in your body, not just your basic iron. And so looking at that and supplementing with iron if necessary, looking at zinc, and these are all things that can be, um, that can be tested. I wouldn't want someone to start things like zinc or iron or vitamin D without having them um, monitored and maybe tested by a medical provider. Because if you take too much of some of these things, then there can be uh, side effects as well. I'm wondering, are, are there studies on the quality of food and the, the over-processing of food in the impact? If we go back to Matt's opening story about the tests about the, the, the mental health professionals in Slovenia, I'm wondering, is do they eat a, a more whole diet? Is their diet less processed than, than you know, our diet in America? Yeah, I, I think food additives are a huge piece. We know very much that um, there's some hyperactivity um, that comes with some of the additives. I think colorings and something like a benzenoate or benzoate or something was one of the studies. Um, and so we have that problem. We have the oversaturation, not that everyone is gluten sensitive or has celiac disease, but the amount of gluten we have in our world is, uh, in the United States in particular, is, you know, we, we, the breads that we buy that last on our shelf for weeks at a time, 
they're they're made with this high gluten um, that makes it so that our guts are heavy with gluten if we eat the normal amount that our grandparents did um, of something that their theirs would go bad after three days, right? So I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think that um, the um, lack of the the, the um, as far as fish goes, the omega threes like the diet, the Western diet is chock full of a ratio of omega-3 and 6 that's opposite of what's good for the brain. So omega-6 um, is high in, um, in I think, um, like farm-raised fish, and omega-3 is high in cold water fresh-caught fish, like salmon and tuna and mackerel. Um, and so if we add those to our diet, they I think there was a study on um, I want to say Ireland um, and because they eat tons of salmon there and fresh caught salmon surrounds their island. And um, I think that I think I remember a study, I can't remember when it was, but related to just that diet alone being lower in attentional disorders. And they surmised it was due to the omega-3 rich diet. So I think diet is huge. Um, it, the additives and the processing and even the um, the farm raised animals is a big thing that we could we could undo and we could probably undo some some of the symptomology if we just went that route alone. But then there's additives. If you have a mutation, your diet is not going to fix the mutation, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, lots of stuff. Go 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 big uh, pharma instead of go big pharma. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Go big farm. <laughs> go big farm with the F. Yeah. Um, this sounds uh, really interesting to me. I could talk about this for a long time. Yeah. Um, it also sounds as a as a diagnostician, it sounds pretty complex, and it sounds like a, a checklist in the waiting room or a checklist in the back of a magazine. Or your friend saying, "Man, I think something's wrong with your kid." It's probably insufficient for really diagnosing th these kind of things, and it it sounds like it takes a much more thorough investigation than that. Yes, and I think that's true for all mental health issues. Yeah. You know, I think you know we can just like with the fever, we can we can ameliorate it for the meantime, but if we don't get to the root cause, it will keep coming back and keep causing disruption and and problems. So, yeah. And, and God forbid we treat the wrong thing, too. I mean, God forbid that we make up our mind really quickly that it's this thing, it is ADHD, or it's it's this kind of anxiety or something, and then we treat it with the wrong thing, and it exacerbates or causes secondary problems. Correct. I, I know this, this is probably a, a totally different show, but I feel that they're just, I know we kind of talked about, like, services available. I just feel like the the attention that people would need to kind of come to the root causes is just so inaccessible to so many people, whether it's cost, whether it's uh, medical professionals, mental health professionals that are available, just, just being persistent enough. Uh, I, know, I know that we've dealt with some health stuff in our family. And if it wasn't for my wife who, who educated herself tremendously on certain things, like we would not have gotten some of the, um, some of the, uh, um, the solutions from, from the medical health professionals, if it yeah. wasn't for her persistence. 
Right. And so I am um, very big on thinking about it like that, probably similar to your wife and what she's seeking. The functional medicine standpoint, really looking at the whole body, you know, I, I complain about medic medicine being compartmentalized and, you know, it, like Matt and I are over here, he's doing, he's looking at, you know, super tentorial meaning the brain. And I'm a psychiatrist, so it's assumed that I'm only supposed to look at the brain yet a thyroid can cause anxiety, uh, you know, a brain disease can cause other things. It can be caused by so many things. So thinking about the whole body, I think that's where medicine should be heading. That's, it is to a degree. We've had probably tenfold number of functional medicine trained and holistic integrative medicine trained doctors and um, providers in the past 10 years since I've been in the world of that but it's still inaccessible. It's still not very well reimbursed by insurance. Um, and so therefore a lot of functional medicine providers tend to you know, have to, you know, if I'm spending two hours with a patient and I'm getting reimbursed, you know, $35, that's not going to be very effective for being able to maintain a practice. So doesn't pay off your student loan. Right. No, not at all. Uh, I won't pay for medical school. No. And so, I mean, that's the conundrum and, and not yeah. saying that other places, in fact, not that, not, not that many um, countries ha have it dialed in where they can spend the time or in, are interested in spending the time, but there, it is available. There are online resources um, that are looking into functional medicine or integrative psychiatry, integrative medicine, um, you can find resources um, just by Googling certain people. And functional medicine providers sometimes will do, um, now that we're in the virtual land, since they're not necessarily doing prescribing, they may do virtual consults, so crossing state lines, um, and that's okay if they're not prescribing or if they're not assuming care as a patient. Mm. So functional medicine, um, integrative psychiatry, those are two, two pieces. To think yeah, I do, I do feel yeah. So for us, it was food allergy related, and that's that's a very, you know, when when um, our son was yeah. when we found out that he had a food allergy uh, a long time ago, there was not much science that there was not much information out there. Yeah, and it's we're starting to get more and more research. I imagine the same is in the mental health space as well. Totally, yeah, that's a big deal, and food allergies can definitely cause um, what looks like ADHD, and so a lot of people that have had been diagnosed as children and end up in my practice where they have been on an amphetamine for a, a series of time, for a period of time, and we haven't ever looked down deeper and the amphetamine is something they don't wanna continue or it's causing them sleeplessness or weight loss or whatever. So um, I work with a functional medicine doctor, primary care, who does a lot of work specifically with, um, with gut health. And because that's a huge component, not just allergies, mm -hmm. but the bacteria yeah. that are in your gut. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things that we've been talking to guests with on this show recently, at least, is how COVID has affected their their life and their work. We talk with a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs and and thought leaders and people who are out there thinking about uh, complex things. So I, I want to ask you, how do you how has COVID in a in perhaps a positive way changed your your delivery of services and your practice? And, and how do you think COVID is changing the, deli the, the delivery of mental health system, uh, the delivery of mental health services in New Orleans? Yeah, um, I have this conversation, I actually did a presentation on this the other day. So interesting and really important. Um, 
I'm working, I'm sitting here at home where I worked from the same desk earlier today, seeing patients. I saw about 30, 30 maybe 40 patients between yesterday and today is um, into their homes. Normally telemedicine used to be required, telemedicine, not, not therapy, but telemedicine. It used to be required that if I was um, uh, virtually going in to see somebody they would, on the other end, there would be, it would be a clinic. It would be a place, especially, <clears throat> I'm also, you know, I'm a prescriber of, of some things that are for medication-assisted treatment for addiction. So especially if I'm prescribing something for um, an opioid use disorder, such as buprenorphine, um, I would need to, there would need to be a DEA number at an office on the other end of, and it needs to be within the state, um, right where I have my license. Right now, there are some slacking of those regulations. The feds gave some guidelines that made it okay to do telehealth into someone's home instead of into an office. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, the, the APA and the um, American Society of Addiction Medicine and some other entities have had some white papers on increasing access a lot of the patients with significant um, mental health and um, addiction disorders, they don't have transportation, they don't have means, they don't have access. And, and, and so that removes one barrier of travel. Yeah. Huge. So I'm seeing more patients, but more patients I'm seeing kind of half-ass really because their data is they don't have data plans. They don't have cell phones. They don't have, you know, or no. they don't have. No. So it's, the technology limitations. And just like students, right? Students, like it's great. They have remote learning, it, it, but, but it's um, some students don't have laptops. And so it, yeah. there's more, there's new barriers, but it doesn't mean that this isn't working. My private patients that do have access and means and can sit somewhere with a good Wi Fi connection. Um, a lot of them are doing really well, and I am very much enjoying getting into their homes and seeing them, their home virtually. So when I'm asking about their sleep disorders, then I look, ask them to walk into where they sleep, and I look at it, and it's got, you know, bay windows where the sun shines in at 6 a.m., you know, or I'm like, why are there four dogs on your bed? Oh, why they sleep with me? So, you know. <laughs> Then of course their sleep is disrupted and whatever I you sleep in a dog bed. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, but telehealth, um, this has also expanded telehealth tremendously, which I think needed to happen. And it just hit, hit it, hit the hammer, um, into that made it get yeah. so much quicker. Arwen, my mind is blown. I'm going to, I'm going to have fun listening to this one because there's yeah. so many words that you said that I'm just gonna have to look up. Right. Okay. I mean, we, we didn't have time to, to go into them all here. I felt like I was in science class. Yay. Whatever. Um, or like, like graduate level here. Yeah. But okay. wow. So much amazing information. I, I really appreciate it. And something you said that really caught my attention. It really reminded me what started Matt and I working together. You talked about the holistic approach that, that so much of medicine is compartmentalized. And um, what, what started Matt and, I, Matt and I off was Matt was meeting with a client that um, he came to me, he's like, Hey, I think it was a financial problem that they had. Wow. And this is, this is kind of how the conversation went. Was that good? Was that good advice? I'm like, that's perfect. And that's kind of what started was that, Hey, money creates issues in relationships and how, how can we, um, how can we serve the, the whole client and, and, and help the, the relationship as well as, as get finances in order. But wow, this is the brain is complicated. 
Um, I love, I love how you talk about the root causes. Um, that, that kind of spoke to me just as I, as I thought about it in terms of, of my business and my industry. So thank you so much for, for the, the plethora of knowledge and wisdom that you, uh, that you shared with us today. Any, any closing thoughts? I just want to make sure that um, folks listening want, if they want to look up um, some suggestions if they're struggling or they have somebody in their family that's struggling with attentional disorders is to really focus on looking into not just the checklists and the new pharmaceuticals out there, which the pharmaceuticals, I'm not disparaging, they really do work for a subset of folks, but probably a smaller subset, but they look into um, the holistic, integrative psychiatry, nutrition, like you said, NDD, nutritional deficit disorder, look into um, the, the whole pieces, lifestyle, television, watching, device, uh, being stuck on devices, and look into lifestyle. And, you know, between nutrition and mindfulness and um, nature, I think we could get probably a large subset of folks uh, to not feel like they're suffering from these brain issues. Wow. Thanks for that. Matt, any closing thoughts before I wrap us up? I, yeah, I think all of this is is really complex. And so um, I, I love this idea of trying to figure out why my attention may be waning. Uh, acknowledging that attention wanes, it's okay. Um, my attention wanes when I'm sleepy. So for me, really protecting my sleep is important. So I love that idea of like uh, paying attention to what may be underneath our attention issues. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, kind of the same thing for me. You, you said something Arwen, earlier about like you have ADD during the day, almost like you can, you can move in and out of having the symptoms without necessarily having, having it. But I think awareness is, is something that's, um, that's huge, but then also understanding, uh, becoming aware of, of your own tendencies, or if you have ADHD or someone you're in relationship with has ADHD and learning to better to relate to them. And the implication of that in terms of of having a stronger, healthier relationship, but then also from like a planning perspective, like being able to make decisions and long-term decisions and being able to take all that into consideration. So again, thanks so much for your time. Uh, we always like to say building us, it's all about investing in your relationships. Fantastic. Dr. Matt Morris maintains an active private practice for couples and families in the greater New Orleans area. To learn more about his work, visit drmattmorris.com. Eric Garcia can be found online at plan-wisely.com. His branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. Entities listed are not affiliated.